So here's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to start with prayer, and then we're going to kind of build our way up into what we're going to talk about and actually finish off with our scripture reading, kind of in reverse order of what we normally do. So if that's all right with you, let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll talk our way to the scripture um, and see what God's word has for us this morning. So let's bow our heads once again with prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the ministry and the preaching of your word. I'm not saying thank you to myself, Lord, but I am thankful for the fact that you um, allow me and allow others to be a mouthpiece to speak your word. So, Lord, I pray this morning that uh, as I do that and as we all uh, sit at your feet this morning from your word and scripture, I pray that you would give us right thinking about it. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, including myself, to be receptive to your word. I pray that the ministry of your Holy Spirit would uh, be powerful among us this morning. I pray that you would give us all a fresh infilling of your spirit, that we might all be on the same page, seeing what your word has for us this morning in 2023 at Village Church. We know that your word has not grown stale, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive it as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing all the way down to our hearts and our souls this morning. Open us and help us to be receptive in the ways that I cannot do, in the ways that we can't even prepare ourselves to do. Do the work that we cannot do on our own today. We pray this by the Spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we turn to our final sermon, not on the household, but our, our final sermon on husbands as we go through this series on the household, it might seem a bit disjointed as we peruse through many scriptures. I'm going to uh, have a lot of Bible flipping today. You're going to hear the fanning of pages. You don't have to turn to all of these, uh, but I'll, I'll, I am going to say a lot of scripture. And as I do that, my hope is that in the end, that we all have a very clear picture of the seriousness of the role of a husband from a broad range of scriptures taken from the old and new. If you take nothing else away from this section on husbands, I want you to see that God's word takes the role of a husband very, very seriously. And my prayer is that the husbands would take it just as seriously. So what I would like to do this morning is finish up the scripture that we looked at last week. For those of you who are here, you'll remember, uh, and kind of run with that in a couple different directions uh, by, and finish by tacking it onto one particular uh, serious verse that we will find in 1 Timothy 5 that we'll turn to later that will lead us into the following sermon on widows. So that won't be next week. It'll be the following work. We're going to talk about widows. So last week we read this very simple verse, but I omitted any word about the final line, which is a pretty big deal. Okay, First Peter 3, 7 says this. It says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And here's the part you need to underline in your Bibles and where husbands we're really going to come back to today. It says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, years ago, these last few words, so that your prayers may not be hindered, they shook me. Okay? As I was reading this, I was like, really? Is that saying what that sounds like, what it's saying? I, I went through a phase of really understanding God's grace towards us as sinners. And just about the moment that I thought I'd attained the height of understanding of salvation by grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's, that's the biblical idea. This other biblical idea threw me for a loop. It was kind of like, well, how does that fit with salvation by grace, through faith, not of works? 
Okay? And, and then it seemed to be everywhere, this biblical concept did. I, I ran across another passage in Proverbs 28.9 that you've heard me say also after the confession of sin. It says, if anyone turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If you turn your ear away from hearing the law, if you're not paying attention, you kind of put your fingers in your ears, your prayer to God is an abomination, Proverbs says. Then I noticed that one of my favorite pastors said this around the confession of sin in the liturgy. Psalm 66, 8 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Sound familiar? I say it every single week pretty much here. So it's this idea of sin blocking the relationship of God. That is what haunted me, okay? As I was trying to uh, bring this together with salvation by grace through faith, it was like, well, how does that fit with that? And then, again, I read it in Isaiah 59, too, where he says, your iniquities, we might say your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If you remember, we also came across a verse in our series on John, in John 9.31. It says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Now think about all of that. Think about all those scriptures about God listening to us, prayer, and how that all comes together. So the unifying theme that we see here is that sin breaks communion with God. Okay, That unifying theme that runs dreadfully clear through all of these scriptures is that our works actually do have an effect on our relationship with God because sin breaks communion with God. It clogs up the relationship, we might say. Now, I'm not about to say that we are saved by grace through faith and works. Okay, That would be stepping into a little bit of territory that we as Protestants have already debated about. Right, that, That's the, the Roman Catholic position, saved by grace through faith and works. I'm not going to bring these together and say that they are one of the same. But I am going to tell you that the Bible intertwines faith and works enough to make me as a staunch Protestant, someone who says I am Reformed, quite uncomfortable at times. Where I read this, I'm like, ah, that doesn't fit as well as I would like with my theology, where works actually have a pretty big play in how we are living with God. Okay, And as it relates to this series, I want you to know that it not only makes me a little bit comfortable in my personal faith, but more pointedly, in my marriage. Okay, Because what 1 Peter 3, 7 is saying, it says that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's explicitly linking our behavior, the behavior of a husband, to our relationship with God. That's a big deal if you think about it. And when he does this, what he's saying is that our works in the household directly affect at least, at the very least, our prayer life. But as I'll show in a moment, our very faith in God. We could summarize this bluntly by saying that if we're not living rightly in our households, our very faith is called into question. We need a lively faith, a true faith. Now, if you would allow me, I'd like to read a passage where Paul addresses the young Pastor Timothy. Okay, Paul is kind of the older mentor, mentoring Pastor Timothy, how he should direct the households of his church. So he's giving direction. This is what the, the families, the households of your church should look like. And within this dense section of scripture, you'll hear an intimidating warning, husbands. And that is that a man, and I would add husband because I think it's implied here, must provide for the members of his household or else. There's this big or else there, okay? Now, hear the word of the Lord this morning from 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 8. This is going to be our text that we're going to move through this morning. So I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. 
Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is a she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Now pay attention here, verse 8, husbands. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. Admittedly, the main concern of this passage is that the church knows who widows are. Okay, We'll talk about what a true widow is in our, our coming sermon. And, and it also shows how these widows should be cared for and how they should live within the context of the church and their family. But the extended warning goes out further than just a simple exhortation to the female widows. It goes further out after that to the men. Okay, Notice it says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives... And especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is men that Paul is talking to within the context of the household. Now, let's pair this with last week's exhortation to husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, lest their prayers be hindered. And while we're at it, pile on all those general exhortations from Scripture that tell us that if we're not operating within the boundaries of God's ordained order in the household, there's nothing to be expected but fingers in God's ears and a hidden face of God that is unwilling to hear the hypocritical prayers of an unrighteous husband. That's a scary place to be in, husbands. Husbands, this is a sobering reality to recognize that we are not, uh, that we we simply cannot build out this theology in our mind, in our head, of this theology of marriage and what it means to be a husband, but never put it into practice. Okay? In your mind, you say, yes, that's what a husband is for sure, and you're real staunch about that, right? Husbands should uh, have this theology that actually works out of their mind, too. Okay? The problem is, is that many of us as husbands have grandiose opinions about what a husband should be when he's talking about another man's marriage. Right? He gets real opinionated when some other man is doing something wrong. But if he were to actually turn the finger back on himself and, and evaluate his own household, ask how it was doing, hold it up to the biblical standard, he would immediately realize that there is a giant plank in his own eye when he's pointing out a speck in someone else's. This is the way that we as husbands need to get serious about our role in our marriage. And and listen here, the concerning thing about all this, too, is that it's in reference to Christian men. This This is Christian men that Paul is talking to. This isn't just unbelievers. Paul is instructing a Christian pastor, Pastor Timothy, and how the members of his Christian church should act. And it's not just Paul talking to Peter or Paul talking to Timothy. It's also Peter. When Peter is instructing his church, he writes to the elect exiles in the dispersion. Okay? This is the church he's writing to. These are Christian households that are being warned that if they coddle their pet sins in the home, their prayers will be hindered. Christians. And even Paul gives this mysterious category of somehow being worse than an unbeliever. I want you to think about that, what that even means, being worse than an unbeliever. He doesn't say that you will be rendered as an unbeliever. He says that you will somehow be worse than an unbeliever. In layman's terms, 
The command to husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, to live with them in an understanding way, showing honor and providing for their households, isn't an, if you get around to it, husbands, it might be great. Wouldn't it be nice if husbands? No, it is do it or else. There are real implications to your faithfulness within your marriage. And here's the main point that I've been trying to get around to. And that is that covenant faithfulness or covenant unfaithfulness equals blessing or cursing. The biblical principle is that we as Christian husbands will be judged according to our works, not just whether or not we're Christians. I want you to think about that. That isn't just me stepping out of a limb and saying, I think this. This is what the Bible says. Romans 2, 6 through 11 says this. This is referring to God looking to humans. And it says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Wow. So, it is true that within the covenant community, God's people, there are still even new covenant curses for unfaithfulness. Like somehow being worse than an unbeliever or having your prayers hindered as a Christian. But just as true is the fact that faithfulness, so doing what you should be doing, obedience actually brings blessing. Okay? It's not just that faithless men have their prayers hindered. It's also that faithful men have theirs especially answered. Okay? This is the biblical principle that we as Protestants often don't think enough about. It says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay? In other words, a man that is doing what he should be doing, he's going to have some traction. He's going to get some things done. Okay, this is the, the example that James used. He talks about Elijah. He, it even says that he is a man like you, having the same nature as you. He's just a human being. But guess what? He was a righteous man. He was a faithful man. He was doing what he should uh, be doing. And he prayed for rain. And it rained. Now think about that. What, what it's saying is that there's a little bit of sway with the creator of the universe to be able to call upon God to rain something that only God controls. Right? We don't make up the weather. God does that. But Elijah had enough faithfulness to where when he called upon God in prayer, he was able to proverbially move mountains, to, to bring the rain. That God listened to his prayer because he was a righteous man. So the point that we need to draw from this as husbands is the deeply covenantal nature of the household that carries the sowing and reaping principle. Okay? This is what the Bible says, even in the New Testament. Okay? Because, because you're covenantally connected to your household, the way that you operate within it is directly related to your faith. Okay? It, it, it works its way out. And the eye-opening reality that we sometimes deny is that even in the New Covenant, there are blessings and cursings involved. It's not that just once we follow Jesus that we enter a covenant with zero conditionality. If that's not true. There still remains an element of blessing and cursing even within the new covenant in Jesus. This is why Paul says when he's talking about the covenantal meal of the Lord's Supper, right? What does he say? Examine yourselves, discern the body. Why? Because some have gotten sick and even died. That sounds like a curse, right? That is, that is a new covenant curse. Jesus explicitly says this is the cup of the what? New covenant in my blood, there's still a bit of blessing and cursing, even in the New Covenant Church. And what we as Christian husbands should be asking is not whether or not we're Christians, 
That shouldn't be the rubric. But whether or not we're sowing blessings and cursings upon our households as Christians by our works. What, what are you doing to your household? How are you living in such a way that it actually has an effect on what your family is doing? Because that is how God will judge your household. According to your works is what the Bible says. You will know them by their fruits. It's the way that Jesus says it. So there's this real principle here that's sometimes hard to to jive with our uh, theology that says by faith alone. That's true, but there is a sense in which your works actually do have a a play in how your everyday living is. There are real principles that apply to you as Christians. So let me give a, a little bit of practical example. What this can practically look like is a man, a Christian man, who is covenantally responsible for his wife and children, as anyone who has a wife and children are, you're in the covenant with them, you're a covenant household. But because of your lack of obedience, you're not, you're not taking the commandments of God as seriously as you should, because of your lack of obedience, you start to fumble a little bit. Kind of, you're kind of tripping up over yourself. And because the nature of the covenant is in some ways conditional, your sins will only snowball at this point, not automatically resolve themselves. It's not that time just heals things when sin is brought into the picture. Things don't just get better just because you're a Christian. You have to do something about that. Okay? You have responsibility as Christians. Say the husband uh, slacks off a bit in the way that he speaks to his wife. Not that big of a deal, we might think. He, he's tired from working all day. He's maybe been out in the fields and he comes home. He's really, or he's really beat. Maybe he's had a long shift at work. He had to cover for someone else. They skipped their shift and he's filling in for them. So he's tired. He's, he's weary. And he, he's growing a little harsh with his wife. He's a little bit snippy. He's ignoring the clear command of Colossians 3 that says, Do not be harsh with your wives. He makes demands maybe that are far-fetched. Not being very understanding, as 1 Peter 3 commands husbands to be. These simple things that we don't really think much about. Or maybe it's the opposite. Okay, Maybe it's not the 1 Peter example or the Colossians example. Maybe it's a dreadfully passive and also lazy man who will not provide for his relatives, even his own household. He kind of sits on the couch. He's watching football as his wife and kids are pulling up the couch cushions looking for extra change because they're trying to make ends meet. Right? We know these kind of people. And in our Christian culture today, we in no way approve of either the heavy-handed man or the hands-off man. Right? Neither of these guys we're clapping about. We're not excited about those kind of husbands. But at the same time, we are strikingly lukewarm towards both of them. Their, their sins don't really get us too wild up. We're, we don't think too much about it. Not too many people want to hand either of these men the hard truth that they and their families are likely suffering unnecessarily because of their covenant unfaithfulness in the home. They're not doing what they should be doing, and their families are suffering because of them. That's a hard pill to swallow. And for some reason, we have given Christian households, Christian husbands especially, an easy pass. Why? Why have we done this? We'll say things like, well, I mean, at least they're Christians. At least they're they're believers, right? I know unbelievers that are out there doing worse things. At least they're Christians. But when we do this and we say things like, well, at least they're Christians and it could be worse, what we're saying is that we're implying that at least they're not an unbeliever is what we're saying. Okay? But hold that up to 1 Timothy 5.8. Okay? Here they are said not to just be like an unbeliever. What are they? They are worse than an unbeliever. So they kind of jump over that category of even being an unbeliever, and they're somehow now worse than an unbeliever because they are Christians. They know what they've been called to do. They know the responsibilities, and they don't care. They don't care. I'm a Christian. I can do what I want. 
I'm a Christian man. God will, God will pick up my slack for me. I'll, I'll just sin a little bit so that grace might abound. Glory to God. There are Christian men that practically live like this every day. They don't take their faith seriously. This man's prayers, they're going to be hindered, according to Scripture. This is what the Bible says. Peter tells us that they are going to find a wall when they are coming to God in their prayers. And even their prayers would be counted as an abomination in some of the scriptures that we pull from the Old Testament. So it's not just that it's going nowhere. It's almost that God's a little bit aggravated when they're throwing up the prayers. God, help my family. And God's like, what are you doing? Like what what you've been here sinning against me and you have the audacity to come and ask me to do something when you're treating my people like this. This is what we should be thinking when we come to the Bible as husbands. What this husband needs in this moment of crisis, and that's what it is, because people don't think of it like it, like that. It's just, well, he's just having a hard time. No, this is a crisis. Whether this man realizes it or not, this man, this husband, needs a repentant heart. He needs his heart changed. That's where it's going to start, right in here. If he wants to proceed with his relationship with God, he must humble himself in realization that his faith not only affects himself, but those around him. His faith matters in more ways than just his relationship with God. He needs to confess his sin to God, yes, but also to his family, because Jesus will not tolerate this man treating his bride like that. Jesus says to the husband that is uh, abusing his wife, maybe it's verbally, maybe it's not even physically, and he says, that's my bride. No, you're not going to come ask me to do this for you when you're here beating up, being harsh with her, not providing for her. That's the kind of thing that we should think about when we as husbands are walking with our wives in our marriages. Okay? We've been pulling a lot of things together now as we come to a, a close. As we're thinking about the husbands, now let me try to land this plane. It's, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty hot right now, right? So when you as a husband... Or you as a wife listening in for your husband, and this sermon maybe, find that you are probably in a boat similar to this. What you need to do is to recognize that you've probably allowed sin to fester longer than you should have. Okay, You've allowed sin to go on for quite a long time. You haven't kept short accounts. Maybe it's been weeks. Maybe it's been months. Frankly, maybe it's always been this way. Maybe you've just always tried to live like this where you're not regularly confessing sins. Maybe you're a household where you never say, I'm sorry. You never make things right. You never reconcile between you and your spouse and your family. Maybe that's you. Okay? And I'm not talking about just the big sins. I'm not talking about adultery or, or, or big things like that. I'm talking about the things that the Bible says, like being coarse with your speech, being snippy. Okay? I'm talking about growing silent and cold about confronting issues. When you have problems in your household and you're doing nothing about it, the Bible isn't silent on that. It talks about it. It talks about men not doing what they should be doing. I'm talking about simple passivity where you're, you're reversing the roles, letting your wife pick up all the slack. She's carrying all the way to the household. She's the one being the leader, and you're sitting back, sitting back watching football. This is a problem. When you find yourself in this boat, you have something to do. And that is repent immediately. Full stop. Don't move forward. Don't do anything else until you repent to your God, repent to your wife, repent to your kids, repent to all the members of your household. And until this happens, you can't expect anything but judgment from God. You can't. Because what you're doing is saying, I've got this handled. Proverbs says, can a man carry fire in his lap and not be burned? And this man says, yeah, I can. I can. I can carry this fire right here. No, you can't. You're going to catch yourself on fire. You're going to burn your house down. 
But so many men do that. They think, well, I've got it handled. I, I was saved back in the day. I went to that church camp. I made that confession of faith. We're fine now, God. No, no, no. Check yourself. You might need to have a, a complete change of behavior and a life change because of your repentance. This is where it starts. This, when you're doing this and you're living like this man that says, I've got it all together, what you're trying to do is live by the law instead of living by grace. You say, I can look at that. I could pretty much do that. No, you can't. What you need, husband, is a gospel mentality that says, I absolutely can't do the law. I can't do that. I can't do the things that you're telling me to do, God. When you tell me to not uh, be harsh with my wife, I can't do that on my own. I need help. I need need assistance. I need something to give because I can't do these things in my flesh. And once the slate is clean from a moment of real confession, the next thing to do is to maintain that gospel mentality as the new normal. Okay? You can't just do this once and expect everything to get better. Okay? This looks like keeping short accounts of sin. I've said this a couple times. What this basically means is not let the sun go down upon your wrath. One of the best marriage pieces of advice I've ever heard was making things right before you go to sleep at night. Okay? When you and your wife are laying in bed and you've got that thing that's still on the plate, time doesn't heal that. Okay? You need to make that right. You need to confess that sin. You need to reconcile then and there. And don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Keep your accounts short. That way you don't have all these ongoing sins that are kind of outstanding that haven't been taken care of for years to where one day they're going to blow up. Because that's what will happen. Okay? You don't confront it then. What's going to happen is you haven't built up this vulnerability and openness in your marriage. And you're going to keep on doing those sins. And one day, one of you is going to snap. Everything's going to blow up. And then you're going to have to do the whole cycle again. Right? There will be tears. There will be crying. And you, you'll go through that. And then you'll say, okay, it's better now. And unless you keep it up, no, it's not. You'll just do the same thing. You'll start that cycle of sin. Okay? So keep short accounts. Don't, don't drag it out over a long time. Okay? And finally, rest in Jesus' finished work. Okay? Even building this into your daily life, though, for husbands, if you're like me, this kind of starts to feel like living by works instead of grace. We're like, another thing. Okay? So I have to live by this. Well, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Because you need to make sure that you keep a gospel mentality of this, and you're not just checking the boxes. You're actually being open with God about this. Make sure you aren't just praying to be praying. Make sure you're not just confessing your sins just to be confessing your sins, but you're actually being vulnerable and open with your need uh, for Christ. Okay? When you come to Jesus, really mean it when you say, I can't do this. Okay? Don't just go through the motions. Actually be open with God and say, I can't. Like I've been trying to do it, and what I find is I can't do it. I'm, I genuinely can't. I need help, God. So when you, when you live a gospel marriage, husbands, you're saying, I can't do this. So I'm going to the perfect husband, which is Jesus Christ, and pleading that his righteousness will then be my fuel that helps me to do what I need to do. That'll be what drives me in my faith. And, and when we do this, we'll find that we're exponentially blessed, church, because we're walking by faith in a perfect righteousness that's not our own. We're walking in the faith of Jesus and his righteousness. That becomes what drives us and actually starts to make a lot more sense of the by grace through faith, not of works. Okay? Where we're resting on Jesus to be uh, the one that fuels all of this. And what it means and what this means to be, to be a Christian husband is grabbing your wife by the hand day by day to take her to the perfect husband, Jesus Christ. Not yourself. Saying, babe, I love you, and I know you think I can do this. you got a lot of confidence in me, but we're going to Jesus with this, and I can't do this. We're going to take this burden to Christ and put it on him, him, leading her day by day by the hand to Jesus Christ. And when you do this, I want you to catch this. 
we have this category of being worse than an unbeliever. I want you to put this new category in your mind besides the worse than an unbeliever. When you do this and you're the Christian man that is acting faithfully, putting your faith in Jesus, when you do this, you're not just better than an unbeliever. You're actually counted better than a believer. Now, how can I say that? Because you are counted as the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In a sense, you are even better than yourself when you are putting your faith in Jesus and living as a husband like that. You're not just not an unbeliever. You're actually as righteous as Christ himself, and you are being fueled with that kind of righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit, applying it to you to work out the things that you couldn't otherwise do on your own. That's the kind of righteous living that we need to live in the household. That's the kind of husbands that we need to be, living faithfully with our wives so that we can expect all the blessings in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you have called husbands to a very scary calling at times. You give us many warnings in Scripture. And Father, we pray today as we look at some of these that we would take them seriously as husbands. Help us to realize that you have put us in a place of leadership and that what we do doesn't just affect our own life, our own actions, our own everyday living, but it affects those around us. Help us to become more aware of that. Help us to deal with our wives in an understanding way. Help us to show honor to them as the weaker vessel. I pray that you would help us to not be harsh with them in the things that we ask of them. We pray, Father, that you would help us to love ourselves in such a sacrificial way that we are reflecting Christ himself. That we are giving ourselves up for our wives, just like you gave yourself up for the church. So, Lord, as we close this series on uh, husbands, the section of the household on husbands, we pray that you would help us to take to heart all that we've been called to, but also encourage and unlip, uh, uplift the husbands that we might realize that we can do this in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, we can't do it. Lord, help us not to rely on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge you that we might humble ourselves and be faithful husbands, bringing blessing to our households. We ask this all in Jesus name. Amen. Let us continue in worship by standing and singing together, Because He Lives. That's hymn number 238, Because He Lives.